MNK Talk YA now presents Obsidio Part 1 from the Illuminae Files by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of M&K Talk YA, a podcast where we talk all about our favorite YA fiction. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this week, we started the third book of the Illumini Files, Illuminae Files, Obsidio, and we read the first half, and we stopped when we got to a side view of the Mao. Yes. I was afraid you were going to be like, nope, I read to a different place than you. <laughs> I read the whole thing. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all the spoilers. No, um, you know what I really like about this series is every book we get a different couple. Yeah. We get a different pair of humans. We get, because first we had Katie and Ezra, Mm -hmm. then we had Hannah and and Nick, and now we have Reese and um, Asha. Asha. Mm -hmm. Great names also. Yeah, and it's kind of cool how they're all kind of connected, and it's fun to see our old couples a little bit more in this book still. Yeah, I like that um, it seems like Katie and Hannah are slowly starting to get to know each other and become friends. Unfortunately, in part because they've both been through so much terrible stuff that they can relate and have very few other people to talk to, but but yes. Do you know what this kind of reminds me of? Red Rising? The Lunar Chronicles. Oh. Just like in the way the story is told with, you know, kind of focusing on a different character with each book and building out sort of the world and the problem and then integrating old characters into the you know how like Cinder we sort of had Cinder and the prince and then yeah yeah. and then we had Scarlet but we then saw you know so I just um very different world very different problem very different plot but something about the storytelling is reminding me of the Lunar Chronicles yeah because it's all these different pairings these all these different couples okay I have to tell you about this thing I read about Okay. Um, so, you know when... Okay, I'm trying to think of how to introduce this. I just got really excited, <laughs> but I didn't think it through. <laughs> so, if we had known about this series beforehand, we could have been on the Obsidio casualty list. What? So, you know on page... It's page 100 in the actual book, but okay. it's when they... When Reese learns about that mass grave with, like, right. two and a half thousand non-essentials on Carenza that were killed and essentially buried in a pile on this Mm -hmm. planet. Um, I guess there was a contest before this book came out where you could, like, have your name be one of the names that shows up on that page. (gasps) Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be so cool? I'm so disappointed. (laughs) That'd be so weird. Yeah. So... Um, what was the contest? What what would we have had to do? It was called the Obsidio Casualty List, and <laughs> essentially, you just you pre-ordered the book, and you like sent proof that you ordered it, and then you included your actual name, and you had to include like a sign or you know like sign something that said my name is whatever your name is. I confirm I'm freely agreeing to the use of my name in the series. Permissions for all blah blah blah. So basically, just saying it's okay, oh, okay. to include my name. Um, and you had to pre-order it. So it wasn't like you had to, you know, make a picture made out of words and send it to them to impress them. Like, we could have actually done it. Yeah, like, we could, like, I could have not messed it up. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I don't, and I don't know if there was more. I think that was all there was to it. That's such a cool idea. Because if you're just having a list of names, like, why not make them fans? Well, it was funny because I remember when I saw it, this is before I knew about this contest, but when I was reading this page, you know, I did read a few of the names and I was sort of like, it must be so hard to come up with that many names. And then it's <laughs> like, oh, names. those are just real names, but fan <laughs> names. And it's kind of kind of cool at first i was like what i love what that mean? you could be on their casualty list i thought people were like voting for who was gonna die in the series or something but then i read more into <laughs> it but i thought that was really cool oh i agree it's a great way to like get your fans involved too because yeah. like we struggle with that too like how do you get fan engagement and i don't know how do you make it more exciting for people and that's such a great way everyone wants to see their name in print yeah. Even if it's on a casualty list. Yeah. I mean, I just want to be like, hey, open to page 100 and I'm... I'm there. Frank Jr. or whatever. That's like, I always wanted to be an extra in a movie. Even if it's just like zombie girl who's crawling on the floor. or You know? Like... Yeah. I, I've always... I actually applied to be an extra for the Hunger Games film, but then I would have had to move to North Carolina. <laughs> well, we looked at... Because uh, Divergent was the first movie oh, right. was shot in Chicago and we were like oh we need to be extras in the next movie and the next one was like in Atlanta or something so we didn't And then they canceled the like the didn't they cancel part 2 of the last movie? Oh yeah. I don't Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that sucks. Oh well. <laughs> there went our chance. But there's a lot of things filmed in Chicago. I should really like actually look into it. Yeah, it's not like an impossible life goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, they filmed a lot of movies in Pittsburgh when I used to live there, and um, I saw Tom Cruise once. I saw the entire setup for the Batman movie that was filmed there because it was a lot of it was filmed in Heinz Field. No, not a lot. There was a scene filmed in Heinz Field, and um, I worked downtown. And at one point, they were doing like um, snow because it, it was supposed to be it was supposed to take place in the winter, and there was snow. And my, my coworker just looked out her window and there was snow falling outside the window, but it was July. And she was like, what is going oh my on? And then the, um, the dance scene was filmed in the lobby of my dad's office building. I think Atlanta is becoming more, like giving more incentives to companies to film here or something in the last several years. But I don't hang out in the right spots. I've, I've never seen anything. <laughs> well, here's hoping. Here's, fingers crossed. Okay, well... Let's talk about the first half of Obsidio. Okay, so we found out what happened on Carenza after we left on the Hypatia and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people did die, but not as many as mm-hmm. you might think just from the initial invasion. Right. And now they're keeping, or Bytech is keeping the miners' families under like lock and key and using them as a threat to keep the miners producing hermium. Yeah. Which is why I said it reminded me of Red Rising. Yeah, that is true. Because it was yeah. talking about like, all the miners and they had to make their quota. Yeah. I, I see where you're going, but I was thinking Lunar Chronicles all the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, so it's, it is kind of interesting because that wasn't their plan either. Their plan was to like get in and get out, it seems like. And in that scuffle at the beginning of the first book, their jump, what is it called? Their jumper Magellan. Thing. Yeah, Magellan got messed up, but they're repairing it and they're trying to finish mining this stuff so they can get out of there. And the timing of when that's done, aka they kill the rest of the Carenza civilians, yeah. is very, very close to when we're supposed to get back on the Mao to Carenza. Mm-hmm. But the Mao doesn't know what's going on on Carenza, and the Carenza people don't know the Mao's coming. And even if they all did, it's just 
the Mao's has a lot of people aren't getting along right now. <laughs> no, they're not. The thing that like was so disturbing to me about that scenario too was the miners. And I know I know there's like a resistance group and they're trying to slow production, but they're working towards their own execution is what they said, yeah. which is so disturbing because it's like they know that they're going to destroy everyone as soon as the Magellan has enough fuel to leave. Well, technically they're saying that they're not going to, right? That's what the official word is. Yeah, but no one believes yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Why would you after what you what they've all been through? Yeah, and so it's so crazy to see all the strategies they're using to try and slow production. Mm-hmm. Like um, when they sent that guy... On his birthday? Or it wasn't really his oh birthday, Oh, my God. Or was it wasn't really his birthday. It was really his birthday. Oh. Um, Marcus Carter, and he, like, accepted that suicide mission to buy them five days. Just to buy them five days. Well, I that mean, was you just... have to, like, I guess to their point, and you're seeing the resistance leaders aren't entirely on the same page. Some of them think, you know, to what degree they should cooperate or be outright fighting against the Biotech crew versus, mm-hmm. you know, trying to steal the Magellan or something. And they're just trying to stay alive one day at a time right now. They don't really have a long-term plan. Right. But at least we know that Asha and her group kind of do have a plan now. They're right at the end. They're, they're trying to get that signal out yeah. to kind of tell someone that they're there. But even that seems, again, it seems like a medium-term plan at yeah. most. Because they don't know if anyone will respond. <laughs> Exactly, because they don't know the Mal's out there. Yeah, but I'm hoping that they can get something to the Mal and the Mal can respond. But we also have like four days left or something, don't we? Not a lot of time. Which is also, it's just, it's kind of funny that it took seven months to get out there and it's like three weeks to get back or whatever. (laughs) I thought that someone said, someone sent a transmission by accident to the Mal. Um, wasn't there some bite? Yeah, the bite the bi- tech people sent a transmission to Heimdall. So Heimdall, the okay, and they because yeah. they still think that like rapier's alive, they still think everything's going according to plan. So I feel yeah. like the Mao does know that they're planning to bomb the remaining Carenza populace, true, and which I guess implies that there are some people there, but they don't, they but they haven't communicated back and forth, I guess, right? Right, right, like they don't really know what's happening on the right. ground or what's going on. And and Carenza doesn't know that help is coming, exactly. Ugh, my god, yeah. And what do you think about Aiden's latest <gasps> and greatest trick? Okay, I oh my god, Katie, I was like really upset. I mean, we knew it was coming once he said you know, we can't make it with all these people. We don't have enough supplies. Didn't you know? No, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't I know what he was going to do. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but I was like, Katie, you can't just tell him to solve it because he's going to just kill people to save the greater good. I was worried that he was going to do something even like, I mean, not that you could get much worse than killing 2,000 people, but I still sort of feel like, quote unquote, knowing that's what he had to do, he did it in a good way well the thing that was so upsetting was he did it he told katie i won't let you die don't worry i won't let you die Mm -hmm. and then he did it knowing that she would kill him that he that she would shut him down and so at the end it's exactly what we were talking about in the first book it's like would you sacrifice one to save many and what it came down to was like he sacrificed himself to save Katie and to save And 2,000 other people. Yeah, yes. that's true. <laughs> that's true. But even, I mean, I even like that he, like, wanted that 
the little baby that was born. Oh, like Hypatia. You know, I mean, as much as he did something that I can't imagine making that kind of decision, he is becoming more human. He, he, or like having more. He's not devoid of compassion. Yeah, he's not psycho. He's just a little bit misguided. And honestly, again, if all 3,000 of them would have died otherwise, I don't know what the right answer yeah. is. But There wasn't one. He kind of did do, he did what he thought was right. Yeah, he did what he said he was going to do. He's ruthless, but he's still, you know, there is that little spark of humanity when he's like, I don't want to see another Hypatia die after they blew up the ship. And, they, and he saved that baby. And... Yeah. In the end, the end, honestly, I almost lost it when he was like, he was like, I, I don't want to leave you. He was like afraid to die at the end. And he, the last thing he almost said was, Katie, I love you. Oh! Yeah. And Katie is obviously feeling responsible because she sure. convinced them to plug him in in the first place. But she defended him. She's also kind of missing him remember how she said she feels like she killed him and she feels like she keeps killing him by not bringing him back to life because yep. she, essentially she just has to turn him. that was hard to read too she could bring him back on if she wanted to so she can't really she can't really have closure yeah. she can't grieve him because he's always there yeah oh god and, and i love how he was basically he had he had this conversation with ella i think right before all this went down where he was like ella we're no different like you flush people out of the airlock Oh, yeah, where she was all judgmental. And, yeah. yeah, and he was like, you're no different from me. And then he was like, I love this. He was like, the villain is always the hero of his own story. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, God. Yeah. And, and it was so sad because, like, he was trying to become more human. Like, we have that. I, we, I love the scene where he threatens Nick. Did he, like, Nick smokes oh, yeah. a cigarette where and he threatens to turn on the sprinkler sense of humor, system. yeah. And then he, I was, like, nervous for him because he was, like, going to flush him out of the airlock. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Especially because he was just coming back online and we were like, does he even know what he's doing? Do you think we're going to see him again? Do you think that's the, really the end of Aiden? I, I think it is. I don't know. Well, I don't know. They'll probably leave it, like, the book will end and she'll still have his memory chip or whatever. And it'll be, like... You know, will will she, won't she? He's never truly dead. I know. I don't know. I mean, I guess at some point you could destroy that data pad and then you couldn't bring him back, right? That's true. But, Ugh. yeah. He's my favorite little psychopathic robot. I know. And he really, he he's still like such a, like, I still don't know if I love him or hate him, but I kind of both. Yeah, I know. Exactly. I sort of think some of the other times he just, like, killed a bunch of people. There might have been other things to do. This time I'm really like, I don't know what other options he had. He shouldn't have gone off on his own, and he could have handled the situation differently. But really, for anyone to survive, they needed to kill off, like, two-thirds of the population, which is just a sucky place to be. I almost feel like they should have just left some people on Hypatia, even if, and been like, we'll come back for you eventually, or... Uh, well, I guess maybe they couldn't. I don't Split even know. I don't know what you do. And you know what's just so tragic, too, is his calculation said that they would all die four days before they reached Carenza. It was four days that 2,000 people died. Yeah. It was also just, you know how Ben Garber was so annoying, but, like, then we yeah. kind of saw this very human side of him when he's helping his best friend's wife and kid and totally like understanding where he's coming from but also knowing everything else that's going on sort of being like it's no one else's fault Garver like just don't make things worse I know and you like 
you really hated him at first until you saw that he was trying to protect that four-year-old. Well, he was just really annoying. Yeah. He just, like, he kept complaining. and and But at the same time, it's like he was trying to give voice to these people who had no one to give them a voice. Like, they were just being transported on this ship under horrible, unhuman conditions. And again, you have to think these, these people who just came off the Heimdall, especially the ones who weren't necessarily, seen, like, interacting with, these killers that much three days or you know two weeks ago their lives were normal like this is a huge change it's not like been going on for seven months for them and they do probably feel like victims and misplacing blame and it's no one's fault except by i don't get what they want to do though like i feel like there is nowhere else to go besides carenza no there isn't it's just so i don't know there really is no solution i know it sucks but what do you really want to do instead and if your answer is there's nothing else to do than just get on board with the plan yeah. because no one likes it. But yeah, no one likes it. But there's there's no resources left. It's not like Sierra Bowl and her group have it better than anyone else. Like they're all pulling their weight. Yeah, and they've been doing this again for an extra seven months, so they're mm-hmm. not. Yeah. Well, building off of that, I really liked the scene where Sierra Bowl, who poor Sierra Bowl, I mean, she was like the navigator on you know, Hypatia. On a research she, ship. She, like, whatever she, whatever she signed up for, she's a theology, like, PhD. She's doing science and, like, trying to solve problems or something and then gets mm-hmm. thrown into this Now nightmare. she's, like, the commander of a ship and everyone yeah. hates her. Yeah. But she's really trying to do her best. And I liked the scene where she is trying to hold a funeral for these 2,000 people that Aiden killed. Mm-hmm. And they're all... They're all asking themselves, like, this is such an uncomfortable question, but, like, what do you do with 2,000 corpses on a spaceship? And how do you travel with them and not have everyone just completely fall apart knowing what you're carrying? And it's just, it's so tragic. But I just, I really liked the scene where where they were trying to figure out how to hold a funeral, and they were um, talking a little bit about different burial rites. Mm -hmm. So my research today was I just researched some interesting burial rites. Ooh, tell me more. I hope this isn't too too dark. First of all, I want to say this is from scoopwoop.com. Very reliable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had, okay, I took umbrage with this site because I was, I wanted to look up different types of burial rituals around the world. And all of the articles that came back were like, bizarre and strange and odd burial rituals and I was like wait a minute it's just because it's not what you do doesn't mean that it's odd or strange or bizarre like like if whole groups of people like if it's a cultural thing right then it's normal for that group of people and what we do is weird exactly exactly and so it's and, and like how you bury and mourn your dead is such a personal thing and it's such it makes up such a huge part of your culture that I I strongly disliked the way this article was worded, and that's my opinion. Yeah, because it's tied into so many of your other belief systems and values. Sure. For what you know, what you think happens when you die, and how that pro yeah, what that process mm-hmm. is. But anyways, so the first one is in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and have you been there? Yes. Okay. Did you go to a cemetery tour? I did. Oh, okay. So you're going to know all about this. I I mean, it was a few years ago, and I drank a lot the rest of the trip, so who knows what I remember. (laughs) Well, I really, really was interested in doing a cemetery tour. It was really cool. I do remember. So I had, like, an old history teacher that my uncle used to live in New Orleans, and um, 
he worked in like the hotel industry. So somehow I got connected with this old history teacher who does like private tours. So it was just me and my boyfriend at the time and this old history teacher. Like we did a historic New Orleans and um, cemetery tour. So we just got to like really know him and he had all these great stories. It was a really cool way to to learn about the city and the cemetery. Yeah. Well, I just did a tour with Chad. I dragged him kicking and screaming because I was like, I'm going to do a ghost tour. He was like, okay, no, no ghost tours. So we went to the cemetery. I think I went like a week or two after you guys, actually. Oh, really? Because because I remember I, I like went and I was like, this is where they got engaged. Oh, yeah, we did get engaged <laughs> in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, okay, so back in the day, New Orleans had a really big problem with how to bury their dead because it's on a swamp, right? So they mm-hmm. they couldn't bury people in the ground. They tried like weighing the coffins down and drilling holes in it to get them stay buried, but it didn't work. So they had to come up with a solution to bury people above ground. Um, and the issue with that is if you have if you bury people above ground, you're going to run into space constraints, right? There's only so much land. And one way around this would be cremation. But the Catholic Church at the time forbade cremation. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively new thing that they allow it. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, So the way they went around that was um, when someone would pass on, they would seal the body in a crypt or like a mausoleum. And they would put the body um, kind of like above in this compartment that was part of the crypt. And then they would seal it in the crypt for one year and one day. And that was the period of time necessary for the body to reach like a level of cremation, essentially, because New Orleans is really, really hot during the year. And so these crypts would reach temperatures of like, like really, really high temperatures. They would essentially turn into an oven. And after a year and a day, the body would would be cremated. But after just a year. (laughs) Well, okay. So the year and a day thing, I learned that um, French mourning customs of the 19th century specified that you should mourn for a year and a day after the death of a spouse. Okay. And then, but the other legal link is, I guess back then, a person's estate is subject to claims after a year, up to a year after death. So the day after that ends, remains can be moved and another burial can take place. Okay. So yeah, after a year and a day, they would take the ashes and they would just push them back in the mausoleum and that way it would leave space for another another person. So they would bury, like, whole families together, essentially. And it kind of goes back to the whole thing of, like, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And a lot of times it was accompanied by jazz parades. Very New Orleans-y. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so if you go to, like, Lafayette Cemetery or any of the other famous ones, you'll see these big crypts, and that's, that's how they buried their dead. They're really cool to see. And, like, you can see where famous people or, you know, you'll see these big, wealthy, family, old crypts. It's a, it's a cool... It's really unlike anything I've ever seen before. I just did a quick Google search while you were checking. It was May 1963 that the Vatican lifted the... Cremation ban? Yeah, cre- yeah exactly. Huh. Um, okay, so the second um, burial ritual that I thought was really interesting... You mean really weird? Just <laughs> No, I actually really like this idea. It's not so much a ritual, it's just kind of a trend. So I guess people in South Korea are um, starting this thing where they compress the remains of their dead loved ones into beads. And they're like different colored gem-like beads. And so it's like, it's an alternative to cremation. So instead of like having ashes that you would keep in your home or scatter, you have these dishes of like shiny, colorful beads and they're displayed 
in glass containers around your home. Hmm. So is it okay? Okay. You don't wear them. They're just displayed. But it's like a decorative way to keep your loved one close. Mm-hmm. I like that. Is it mixed with something or is it like pure? No, I'm sure it's mixed with something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly what, but um, I thought that was super fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. So another thing that you can do, so there's a company in the U.S. called Eternal Wreaths, and they have a program where they will compress the remains of your loved one into um, a reef ball, essentially. So they'll make, they'll make like um, a structure that they then attach to a reef in the ocean, and it provides a habitat for sea life. Hmm. That's kind of cool, like giving back. Yeah. So it's all environmentally safe, obviously, and... And, you know, there are specific permits where you can where you can place them. But the idea is like you preserve and protect and enhance the ocean and like giving life to another creature Mm -hmm. with your own body. Mm -hmm. I love it. So I guess right now there are more than 1800 eternal reefs off the coast of Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Maryland, New Jersey, Texas and Virginia. I just think I would be I'm like superstitious about weird stuff i think i'd be a little bit freaked out if i was like swimming near there and knew yeah but i think it's a cool thing to do where i'm not swimming (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean it's just nice to think that like fish and and wildlife and other creatures are like using your remains to help build a home for themselves i like that idea I mean, it's also, it is like a little bit weird to think of just like putting bodies in boxes in the ground, you know, like that's oh, yeah. kind of a weird idea too. I agree. Um, so the Caveteño people who live near Manila, they bury their dead in a hollowed out tree trunk. So this is kind of interesting. So the person selects the tree that they'd like to be buried in before their death and the family members build the person a hut around the base of this tree that they live in until they die but the family and friends come together and they help hollow out this tree trunk and then when the so wait, person... when do you build the hut like at what point when you're nearing death due to like old age or sickness or okay. so if you're getting old or yeah. you're suffering from something okay. exactly so the family gathers together they hollow out this tree and then when the person passes they are entombed vertically in this hollowed out tree and the idea is that um the tree gives life to the tribe by providing fruits and wood and nourishment. And so when the person dies, they give their life back to the tree. That is cool. I loved it. Um, okay, this is actually really cool. So in Ghana, there is uh, the Ga community. They sometimes will bury people in a coffin that represents their lives. So there was an interview with a man. His name's Joseph Ashong. And he was a coffin maker for 50 years. And he creates fantasy coffins. That's what they're called. So these fantasy coffins are shaped like something that was important to you in your life. Mm-hmm. So he said he's made um, plane coffins for pilots or like fish-shaped coffins for fishermen. And the idea is that they believe that life transcends death and that um, burying your loved one in a coffin that represents his or her profession or something they love to do will allow them to continue doing what they loved in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. I like that. So, like, we would have a book coffin. Yeah, definitely a library coffin. Oh, a whole library. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to just read one book over and over. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I like to have some variety. That that is cool. Yeah, I just thought that was so interesting that they designed these specialty coffins to kind of represent what they loved in life. 
Yeah. No, that that is... I mean, it's kind of... I have a lot of respect for traditions around death that deal with honoring the person's life or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I feel like that's sort of in line with that. Instead of focusing on the fact that they're gone, trying to... Fo- which is really hard, but focus on, sure. you know, what they did with their time. Celebrate their life. Yep. I um, did something somewhat related, but... Also not as inspiring. I don't know if I would call it inspiring, but it was a little morbid. But that's me. Well, I looked up shocking mass graves. Oh, okay. Because, again, going back to this, the 2,000 plus people who were dead on Carenza. But I also did some more fun research. You want to hear my more fun research first? Okay. Let's do like a little palate cleanser and then, and then we, we can, can rush through the, through the mass grave. We can go to the mass grave part, yeah. Yeah. Or should or should we do that mass graves first and then we can end on a good note? Oh yeah, that's probably better. Uh, well, I re- okay. I'll save this for next week, but I also researched um, inspiring stories of people who sacrifice themselves to save others. Oh, that's a good one. Again, still sad. Well, I mean, to be fair, this book doesn't have a lot of happy things going on right now. That's true. It really doesn't. It really, our research is reflective of what's going on right now. Like, it's, it's just like a lot of people dying, unfortunately, when they don't deserve yeah. it. A lot of suffering. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let me take a drink of my young adult beverage and tell me about mass graves. I looked up a bunch of different articles because I was trying to find something that wasn't as depressing as everything else, but it's, it's mostly yeah. a lot of not great stories. Okay. Um, so this is, this one's from 12 newly unearthed mass graves that hid horrific secrets on ranker.com in 2014. And I read about this one in a couple of different places. So that's so recent. Yeah. So this is when it was discovered. So it's not when the, the bodies were buried or whatever, but there used to be this bond sakers, mother and baby home in Ireland. It was a, Catholic home for unwed mothers and their children, basically. Okay. And this lady was doing some research, this local historian, her name was Catherine Corliss, and she found that there were, like, death certificates for almost 800 kids, but only (gasps) one burial record. What? So she started kind of, like, digging into this more, searching for, you know, what happened to the rest of all these bodies, and they found... 796 skeletons of children between the ages of three months to three years in the septic tank of this Oh my home. god. I just got chills all over my body. Yeah, it's so creepy. Wait, so the women were coming there and getting... I don't, I don't know if they just happened to be dying and they weren't burying them properly or like I don't, it doesn't, what I read doesn't in- indicate that they were like murdering them. Okay. But um, a lot Still, of a the lot of kids. a lot of the results did say that it looked like the children were dying of diseases and symptoms related to severe neglect. So oh, they probably no. weren't murdering them, but they definitely weren't being good weren't care, care takers either. Um, and that that was probably around the 1950s, I think, is what they said this was happening. So that one kind of gave me, you know, Nightmares, chills. Yeah. Um, is one of the ones you found the ones from um, ancient Greece where they would cast away the um, children who were like weak or who they deemed weak or not perfect? I didn't read into one that was like that. There were a lot. Okay. There's a lot of mass graves out there. But yeah. this one I thought was a little bit kind of interesting, too. This is in, this is this year, earlier this year, um, in this prehistoric lake in Sweden. 
there was a bunch of skulls that were found by archaeologists dating mm-hmm. back um, to like European Mesolithic culture. Okay. But this one was also kind of related to rituals of death. So the 12 skulls they found were next to a full skeleton of an infant. They believe the infant either died shortly after birth or was stillborn. Mm-hmm. But seven of the 12 skulls had marks indicating blunt force trauma to the head. Oh my God. Which would have been like a really not great way to die. No. And the skulls appeared to have been deliberately buried underwater and all but one of the skull was missing their jawbone. Oh. So they're not really sure why they might have been buried this way. This isn't really in line with what else they know about this culture, but um, they believe that some of these markings and missing jawbones might have might be an indication that they used to display the heads of their enemies on spikes. Oh my goodness, like souvenirs. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's so scary. Jawbones. Oh. Um, so there were there archaeologists in Athens, Greece in 2016 found a mass grave containing 80 skeletons that were all lined up in a row and had been shackled. Oh no, like execution style. Yeah, like a mass execution. They were still had shackles on them. So the skeletons show that the prisoners were young men in good health and shackled in iron with their arms above their head. Oh no. The top theory is the head. So this is kind of interesting. So there was this Athenian nobleman, Cylon. I think he was, I think another article I read was talking about, he was like an Olympic athlete or something. He was an athlete who had a big, like he was celebrity status, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the ancient Olympics. Mm -hmm. And he basically gathered a bunch of followers and tried to take over the government. So he staged a coup that failed. And supposedly okay. he hid while a bunch of his men were taken prisoners. So, like, the leading theory is that these 80 skeletons were Cylon's followers back from back in the day. So that's, you know, these young men who were following this, okay. like, celebrity athlete at the time who failed to take over the government. So anyways, there's a lot of mass graves out there, more than you would want to know about. Some of them also are, like, the result of different, like, pandemics that went through. So oh, oh yeah. In Pennsylvania, there was this construction worker who was supposed to be, like, widening a highway or something, and he found a bunch of human bones during this process. Um, okay. And they dug into it a little bit more, and they basically found a burial ground from the flu pandemic of 1918, which killed over 50 million people worldwide. Oh, the Spanish flu? Yep. Oh. Yep. So they found that in 2015. So according to the records, the town had 17,000 infections and over 1,500 deaths in one year. That's insane. So, I mean, again, the weird thing is that because of the speed at which people were either dying or getting sick, they, like, weren't able to bury everyone properly. Yeah, I mean... And things like that, so... Oof. So, I mean, some of them are more uh, terrible stories of, like, people, you know, mass graves where people are being executed, and some are more also not good stories of people dying from more natural means and just not being, having a way to dispose of the bodies quickly. Right, and also, like, to prevent the spread of disease, like, you have to to take care of them a certain way, you know? Like, it's important, it's very important to quickly bury your dead whenever you have a something like the spanish flu happening especially i would think yeah what did they know in 1918 though i'm kind of like what did they know during the plague yeah yeah i know i mean like i don't know if they were burying people the right way anyways or far enough away or i don't i mean you know i don't know but yes you definitely don't want them like hanging out in your living room for a while no no 
Okay, happy story now. Okay, so one, so some of the new characters we've met. So we've met Reese and his mm-hmm. uh, sergeant Oshiro. Um, yep. And it was it's been kind of fun to see the bad guys, but also like kind of they're also just humans who've kind of got sucked. In. And I'm not saying that makes it okay, but they're you know we are kind of seeing the human side of some of these people as well. Right. Um, but I loved, and I'm tr- I can't even find the example of it right now at the beginning when we first got introduced to her and how bad she was at analogies. Oh yeah, Do you remember that part? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is like one of my old favorite articles. I remember back in high school or something seeing this collection of the worst analogies ever found in a high school essay. Have you ever read these? No. Okay. But I'm I get excited to hear some of these. <laughs> They're really really good. I'm gonna share some of my favorites. Okay. The little boat gently drifted across the pond, exactly the way a bowling ball wouldn't. (laughs) From From the attic came an unearthly howl. The whole scene had an eerie, surreal quality. Like when you're on vacation in another city and Jeopardy comes on at 7 p.m. instead of 7.30. You miss it. I feel that one. Her eyes were like two brown circles with big black dots in the center. That's exactly what they are. He was as tall as a six foot three inch tree. <laughs> it's just like I can totally imagine oh kids God, like so not funny. getting analogies and writing these things. Um, more, more. Okay. Uh, her date was pleasant enough, but she knew that if her life was a movie, this guy would be buried in the credits as something like second tall man. <laughs> So forgettable. Yeah. John and... This is one of my favorites, actually. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, my God. The politician was gone but unnoticed, like the period after the doctor on a Dr. Pepper can. Oh, my God. Doesn't that make you want to check a Dr. Pepper? Yeah. So some are just, like, really obvious, too. Like, the, the red brick wall was the color of a brick red Crayola crayon. The thunder was ominous sounding, much like the sound of a thin sheet of metal being shaken backstage during the storm scene in a play. Oh my god. The thunder sounded like someone pretending to make thunder. (laughs) That is fantastic. Here's the final one I'll share with you today, but you should look up some more of these because they are great. Um, Long separated by cruel fate, the star-crossed lovers raced across the grassy field toward each other. Like two freight trains, one having left Cleveland at 6.36 p.m. traveling at 55 miles per hour, the other from Topeka at 4.19 p.m. at a speed of 35 miles per hour. Okay, that kid is a a physicist. Or that kid was doing his math homework and his English homework at the same time. Oh, God, I love it. So. Oh, to be a teacher in grading those papers. That's that's so funny. Wait, I have one. I have one more just because I saw this one. Okay. He spoke with the wisdom that can only come from experience. Like a guy who went blind because he looked at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it and now goes around the country speaking at high schools about the dangers of looking at a solar eclipse without one of those boxes with a pinhole in it. Oh <laughs> my god. That oh. is very elaborate. But also some of the they're they're also like great. Like it's a little bit wordy, but it does capture a certain feeling sometimes (laughs) but when I was reading when they were like kind of when she had a few of those just kind of bad analogies I immediately thought about this article that again I've read it multiple times like I've go back to it for humor over the last several years but um 
yeah, kids are funny too. Analogies are hard. They sure are. So what do we think about Sergeant Oshiro? I don't know. I like want to like her, but she hasn't given me a reason to yet. I hate how like all the officers have these dumb sayings on their pins. It's like, thou shalt kill and I am your god now. I also, I just, I really didn't like the scene where Reese is there like on a mission or something and they see that little girl and, Mm, you know, there's... They have instructions that any unregistered civilian should be shot on sight. But, like, Mm -hmm. she was a little girl. And that one guy... And it would have been different if someone, like, shot her while she was fleeing without realizing she was a little... Like, you know, they were just doing their order. But, like, yeah, when they actually shoot her, she's no threat to them. Yeah. She's a terrified small child. And then Reese attacks the guy who does it, like, punches his commanding officer in the face. And he writes a report about it, and he gets yelled at for ratting about, like, what goes on in the field, and Oshiro didn't report it. And I was just like, oh. Toby is not happy about that either. No. It just bothered me so much, and, like, I get that they are following orders, and there's a certain type of protocol that happens, but I just didn't buy it from her, because her they have that whole story where her father is, um... Yeah, at the Cortez at the uh, Cortez campaign. Yeah. Which it sounds like that was also a terrible situation. But he did the right thing. They said they were eating their own dead, but he would go out each night and take the wounded off the battlefield regardless of... Whether they were friends or, or you know, enemies. Yeah, and, exactly. and he always said a soldier's first duty is to his conscience. Yeah. So I... And, and I think she says she does feel bad about it. You know, she knows she's completely lost her humanity. She knows her father would be extremely disappointed in her. But it's just, it sucks not seeing her do the right thing. Yeah. I'm curious to see, because she's also, she like almost does the right thing so many times. And I think that's what's so hard and why we want to believe in, you know, like she almost said something when the kid. She did. Or she, I think she would have said something, but she didn't get a chance. And then she didn't continue to say anything. And she does kind of help him out when he gets caught. Oh, yeah, when they're planting the data packets. Yeah, but it also sort of feels like she's just protecting her own skin, too. So, I don't know. I'm kind of curious to see, because now she's even more like, don't leave my sight. I'm curious to see if she gets put into a position where she really has a choice, because right now I think she might feel like she doesn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar to how Reese did earlier, especially if she's been even more desensitized to what's going on. Yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of curious if she catches Reese actually doing something and he kind of gives her an opportunity to help him if she'll step up. I think or she if, will. Yeah. I'm hopeful that she will. Because I don't think any of these soldiers really believe in what they're doing. I think they're also just kind of trying to survive and have gotten sucked into this horrible mess, which doesn't excuse their behavior by any yeah. means. But I think they're still accountable. No, I, I agree. But I also don't think many of them are like, you know, I want to go out and kill a bunch of civilians. Sure. Today. Like, that's not... So I think it's possible for them to, some of them, to change. I agree. And also, like, the situation with Oshiro, she said, you know, she's under the impression, like, the entire, we keep forgetting, the entire colony of Carenza is illegal. You know, the mining operation they had there was illegal. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, this is how she justified it. It's illegal. And to her, these people are criminals. And, like, that is what she's holding in her mind as kind of justification for doing what she's doing which i buy to an extent but not for (gasps) shooting a 12 year old or 8 year old kid or whatever like i don't care i don't care if that 
girl is the, a member of the deadly if she's part of the knives of whatever. house of knives like yeah she's she girl. is 12 years old or eight years old or whatever it is and what do you think about okay sorry i'm jumping around the girl in the air vents the little girl oh, oh, that oh, ash oh. is katia katia yeah what do you think about that i'm so nervous for her oh my yeah, goodness me that too. was so scary when she went out and got the toy and Oh, I know. Hearing was, Asha's backstory. And... Especially since, like, we, I remember, I remember hearing about Martha back from the first book, the woman who had that really bad survivor's guilt because she thought all her children were killed on Carenza. And Kate, yep. Cassia is her daughter. Yep. And I wonder, is Martha even still there? I don't know. I have no idea because people have died so many different times and ways at this point. It would be great to see a reunion with them. But yeah, with the whole Ash's whole backstory with her sister um, Samara, Samara, she got hit by a car and Asha wasn't there because she was like... She had been stabbed because she had gone back to this club that she wasn't supposed to be at and yada, yeah. yada, yada. And so she feels super guilty that she wasn't there. So, But I mean, even without that backstory, I feel like Ash is the type of person who would have taken care of that little girl regardless. I agree, but I think it adds another level of her feeling almost like an extra burden because of it. You know, like I've already let someone down. Like she, I feel like she may still want to protect and be motherly to this girl anyways, just because it does seem like it's coming naturally to her in that sense. But I think she, like the stakes Mm -hmm. are, she's almost like stressing herself out more about it because she let her sister down or something. Yeah. Agreed. And oh my God. And also, um, Joran, his wife and daughter, the 13-year-old girl who's getting this unwanted attention from the guard. Oh, that bothered me so much. And he's, like, trying to get permission for them to move in with him, and he keeps being denied. Or for him to move in with them, or literally anything. Or for the soldier to be reprimanded or something. Yeah. And then he didn't send the email, but you see the email that he wrote just, like, completely out of frustration. Just And it was just all his emotions, like, vent up into this email that he never sent. Because what he has no, he hasn't, there's nothing he can do, you know? I know. I can't imagine just feeling that helpless, how terrible it would be. Yeah. Okay. So we have half a book left. Mm-hmm. And we have sort of, between the three books, we kind of have these three couples, right? So six main characters. Obviously, there's several other secondary characters as well. Mm-hmm. I think at least one of them has to die. Oh, no. I think so, right? Who? 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 <laughs> okay, I don't want anyone to die, just to clarify. I think... Oh. Asha and Reese, that's who I pick. No, Katie and Asha need to be reunited. <gasps> oh, that's true, that's true. I don't think anyone's gonna die. Okay. Because Aiden already died, that's enough. That's enough death for me. No, I think Aiden's gonna come back and someone else is gonna die. Ooh, maybe Ezra dies and Aiden gets Katie at the end. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, what is... I just feel like someone's going to die during this resistance. So, like... Okay, well, Reese is going to die, but then magically be fine at the end. Because the guy always dies in these books, and then he's fine. We're going to have just a bunch of death scares, and then everyone will actually be fine, because wormholes. <laughs> because wormholes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I mean, I want them all to live, don't get me wrong, but... I bet... Ooh, ooh, I bet... Ooh! What? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I bet, okay, I bet that Reese gives Sergeant Oshiro an opportunity to join, to do the right thing, redeem herself, and get on board with the right side. Mm -hmm. And I bet she takes it, but then I bet during the skirmish something happens and she sacrifices herself so everyone else can survive. Hmm. Because she's like, 
let herself down. She's let her father down. She's lost her humanity. She has nothing else to live for. And she has an opportunity to save all these people and be remembered finally for doing the right thing. And then she dies and the book ends. Okay. Can we also, because I just remembered this, (laughs) Ezra's mom is the bad guy. Oh, that's right. When is that gonna come? When is that gonna come back into play? We haven't seen Leanne in a while. Yeah. Somehow she gets involved, but we know she's not dead because she's on trial. Remember? Oh yeah, okay. that's true. So yeah. she lives. The bad, the bad guy lives. Great. She doesn't, but she's all. <sighs> and now we have all the um, like Katie and Ezra, and because Ezra got kicked off the flight squad, now they're all like compiling um, that research now, like all the files, the actual files. Which we already knew it was that. I mean, like it's just nice yeah. to get the story about why you know they're the ones narrating stuff, but and it's it is like I like that they are being realistic about people having a hard time taking orders from kids because like yeah. Sarah Bull, we we like her a lot because she knows that it's she knows the wisdom of taking advice from people regardless of how old they are. And she's been really good about that. But everyone else, like, they see Nick, they see Ezra, and they're like, why should we listen to you? Also, though, it took her, Katie proved herself by literally saving everyone else. It wasn't yeah, like when Katie first tried to talk to her, she also blew her off. So it, it wasn't like it came supernaturally. The that's other true. thing I really like, though, Hannah in this book has nothing to do. Yeah. Which makes sense because the skills that made her a big character in the previous book... She, I mean, hopefully when they get to Carenza, she gets to do some cool stuff. But I think it would almost be weirder if she was, like, suddenly had another skill that was really used. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's kind of appropriate that given they're just stuck on a ship going back through time. Yeah. What her role was that she's sort of like, I want to be helpful, but I don't know how at the moment. Right, right. I'm sure we'll see her do more in the second half because that's where her, you know, battle strategy skills will come into play. Exactly. Let's keep reading. Okay. Let's go. I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to finish the book for next week. Yes. And, oh, did we really quickly have a favorite scene in this first half? Ooh. No, not really. I know. It was really all pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, no. Oh, may, okay. No. Here's no. the scene I would want to <laughs> see would be the one you referenced earlier where Aiden is messing with Nick. Yeah. Okay. Just because it would that. be funny. and That whatever. would be funny. Yeah. Nothing else I really want to see, to be honest. No, me either. <laughs> I'm totally with you on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's a scene where they're playing cards. No, no, that's terrible, too, when they're talking about all their crazy ex-girlfriends and how they all have battle wounds from them. No, thank you. Hmm. Okay, well, maybe there'll be some more cheerful events happening in the second half of this book. Somehow I doubt it. And I'm really going to miss Aiden. Ugh. I know. I kind of <sighs> want him to come back. But I don't know what he would do. I don't know that we'd need him. And I actually don't. I'm, I'm the one who's saying, like, why are we bringing everyone back to life? And this is the <laughs> one that, like, like actually makes sense, Aiden. though. But, yeah. All right. Well, let's keep reading and see what happens. Sounds good. Who's, wait, is, whose turn for a joke? Is it your turn? It's mine. Okay, and I good. didn't. I have a really dumb one because I didn't spend any time trying to find a good joke. That dumb is what we're all about. Okay, Katie. Um, what's what's red and bad for your teeth? What? A brick. <laughs> <laughs> um, hello, everyone. Thank you uh, for listening. Good. If you want to hear more really bad jokes, keep listening, keep following. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. 
Maybe don't rate based on the quality of our jokes. Is the brick as red as a red brick Crayola crayon? <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a lot of humor. Those analogies that those high school kids wrote yeah. brought humor to this. That's this true. Episode. It saved it. You saved the podcast. <laughs> no, those high school Katie. kids did. Like just like in the book, high school kids can save the world and our podcast. <laughs> just give them a chance. Believe in them. Just listen to their analogy. All you high school kids listening out there. We believe, we believe in, you. in you right now, but in 10 years, nah. <laughs> just kidding. Once you get to be our age. <laughs> You'll just be making podcasts about high school kids. Okay. All right. Please send us send us emails. Send us yes. um, dad jokes. Send us book recommendations. We love to hear from all our fans. Um, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. The and is spelled out. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. Um, if you like Instagram, you'll see a lot of pictures of our dogs that bark in the background quite often. So but if you want to really put cute. a face to that <laughs> loud yelling, <laughs> they're really cute. Um, yeah, so we'd love to hear from you. Bye, bookworms. <laughs> and go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.